Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shackman. Even in these troubled times, we are divided. At a time when we should all be pulling in the same direction, even issues of life and death are political. Politicians who have professed to be pro-life are suddenly more pro-money, regardless of the body count. Many have asked recently, particularly in the push to prematurely open the economy, how we got here. The answer has nothing and everything to do with our current politics, but the roots go much deeper. The line is very straight between what's ripping us apart today and a religious movement masquerading as a social movement that has roots in the late 1970s. To explain, I'm joined by Catherine Stewart. She's written extensively about the religious right. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, American Prospect, and the Atlantic. Her previous work includes the Good News Club, an investigation into the religious right in public education, and the Power Worshippers, a look inside the rise of religious nationalism. It is my pleasure to welcome Catherine Stewart to the Who, What, Why podcast. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Good to be here. Explain, first of all, what religious nationalism is. What does that phrase mean? Sure. The first thing to know is that it's not a religion. It's a political ideology. Its representatives insist that the foundation of legitimate government is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. It basically says the U.S. is founded on the Bible and can succeed only if it stays true to this foundation. So Christian nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population and for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. And I want to say something else about what the movement is not. It is not about evangelicals only. It, it does include many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals too. And it includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. What unites the movement is not a distinct theology, but more a political vision. And how did that political vision emerge from religious roots? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think that um, we can look, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, back to the 1970s and uh, early 1980s. Uh, One thing the movement has been incredibly successful in doing is in controlling the past. So they've sold us this idea that their movement was a grassroots reaction to abortion, but it's simply not true. There was a moment when leaders of what would become today's religious right were going down a list of issues that could bring the movement together. They were upset at the time about the direction the uh, culture was taking in the sort of political um, the, uh, of the politics of the movement, and they sort of looked at the issues that concerned them. One was the primary issue for them was the unfair tax treatment, in their view, of these segregation academies, these racist academies. Uh, they were very upset. The IRS was looking at uh, groups like Bob Jones's uh, schools and saying, well, why are, why are these segregated schools getting tax privileges? And that they, they were very upset about this, and that really animated their concern. But they realized that this wasn't an issue that was really going to be very attractive in uniting the movement. So they looked at some other issues. The women's movement they were unhappy about, and there were several others on their list. They crossed one after the other to realize that they wouldn't work to unite the movement and define an enemy. And they came to the issue of abortion. It was like number five or so on the list. And leaders of the movement thought, wow, that could work. And so they basically 
at the time, let's remember that most Republican uh, Protestants supported some form of abortion law liberalization. Remember when Roe v. Wade was passed, the Southern Baptist convention actually hailed the decision as what they saw as a middle ground and other Republican leaders like Betty Ford hailed it as a great, great decision. Barry Goldwater uh, supported the liberalization of abortion law early, at least early in his, in his career. But over time, and thanks to leaders of this movement, the Republican Party was purged of its pro-choice voices. And, uh, and now we see today a sort of uh, movement that appears to be united around these culture war issues. I think when you're looking at the movement, you have to distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. The followers may believe they're fighting for things like a ban on abortion or a defense of what they see as the traditional family, but those issues have been sort of created over time in order to capture their votes. They know, the leaders know very well that if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their vote. And so they've kind of created almost like a religion of pro-life in order to, you know, control the votes of a large subsection of the American public. And is the object simply political power for political power's sake? Or is there a broader and specific agenda that, that is a lot deeper than the culture war issues that they use as their patina? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something to understand about the kind of political movement that it is, it's, it's an anti-democratic movement because it says that the foundation of legitimate government in the U.S. is a strict interpretation of a, of a particular religion. So the movement is hostile to pluralism. It's hostile to many of our most cherished constitutional principles and uh, it and don't believe in uh, equality. Um, you know, and one way they do this is they sort of create a mythical history of America's allegedly Christian founding in which believers in their religion reigned. And that's what religious nationalisms do. Then uh, Christian nationalism in America has invented a history in which America's founders were all Bible thumpers intent on establishing America as a conservative Christian nation. Um, you know, I think Americans, Christian nationalist leaders talk a lot about American exceptionalism, but there is nothing particularly exceptional about uh, religious nationalism in America. It's garden variety religious nationalism where leaders bind themselves very closely to religious conservatives to solidify a more authoritarian form of political power. And talk about the way that it's playing out now, given the current pandemic, given the battle to reopen some of these states. It's really the full flowering of the anti-science, anti-fact, anti-elitist aspect of the religious right and of the Trump base. That is true. And, you know, when you mention the hostility to science, I think that's really salient today. Um, and I think understanding that, you know, we should understand that Trump is beholden to a movement that has for decades derided science, um, bashed government, hollowed out the social safety net. And I think this is really key. Understanding this is key to grasping the source of the Trump administration's dysfunctional response to the current health care crisis. I mean, first and foremost, the movement is has rejected science for uh, certainly since the 19th century, rejecting the evidence of science, rejecting expertise and critical thinking. 
And that has obviously contributed to our inability to address the coronavirus crisis in an evidence-based fashion. Misinformation about science is rife in hyper-conservative religious communities that were all in for Trump. So I think that, um, you know, sometimes people look at this sort of movement's hostility to science um, as a kind of a, an interesting quirk and almost like a cultural feature of the movement and often the consequences of this type of um, misinformation don't reveal themselves and you know for quite some time but in the face of a global pandemic that's actually killing people the consequences are unfortunately right in front of us i mean it it repeats itself because early on when there was all this talk among the president and sean hannity and so many others that somehow the virus was a hoax it echoed exactly the language about climate change that's absolutely true. I mean, we see survey evidence shows that like people who deny climate science tend to be, you know, over overrepresented in these hyper religious communities. And um, you know, in the Trump administration, he spins everything for partisan gain. Everything is either before, you know, for him or against him. There's no idea that anything is based on reality. So you look at some of these religious leaders who were all in for Trump, his most, you know, uh, devoted allies, and they too are calling, were, were calling the coronavirus a hoax. Like folks like Jerry Falwell Jr. suggested that this was just another attempt to take Trump down as though liberals and Democrats invented the coronavirus uh, in order to, to, to bash their, their, their favorite leader. I mean, it's really kind of extraordinary. The other aspect is, is, and a lot of that, this has been talked about over the past couple of days, the pro-life basis of, of the religious right, at least that being the argument that they've put out there so much as you talk about, and this attitude about life with respect to this pandemic, which seems very different. You know, it's really, yeah, I get a lot of mail from folks who write about the folks in you know in the religious right and folks in the Christian nationalist community I sort of sign up for various mailing lists the past couple of days I'm starting to see some really alarming messages they're saying things like you know this virus is going to purify the land or this is you know God is going to purge a lot of sin from the land and this is these are really sort of nihilistic messages as though somehow the virus has been brought upon as a consequence of of, of, of sin of non-believers or of sin of people who support LGBT equality and things like that. And, uh, you know, then you get these other voices that say, you know, we should really, you know, sacrifice a generation for the youth and we need to sort of ignore the re- recommendations of our public health experts and just carry on as usual and some number of people die in order to preserve the economy. And yet there these same people are willing to tell women that uh, we should sacrifice all bodily autonomy and the economic futures of our families in order to preserve every single zygote. So there is an irony here. How do they reconcile that? I mean, it, it is just pl- admittedly playing out right now, but you've talked to these people, you've, you've deeply researched this. How do they reconcile this? I think if you view this as a political movement, if you understand that this is a political movement and not just a stance in the so-called culture wars, you see that so many of the positions they adopt are based in 
a drive for political power. And of course, the ironies uh, can be justified when um, the drive for political power is the ultimate aim. And it kind of goes back to the question that so many people continue to ask, how can people who purport to care about values support a leader like Trump with all of his, you know, many obvious (laughs) issues? I mean, I don't know where to begin. And I think, you know, some people view this as just a kind of transactional support. They think he's going to you know, appoint justices that are favorable to their positions in so-called culture wars or enact economic policies that are favorable to their politics. But let's not overlook something that's really important. The support for Trump is not entirely transactional. And yes, it's true they got the deal that they looked for. You can't explain the tenacity of the movement, the hyper-loyalty of their support on purely transactional terms. There's something about his style of politics that speaks to this group, and that is tribal politics, authoritarian politics. This group doesn't want a nice guy who follows the rules and and obeys the law. If you're looking to establish a king, if you're looking to kind of replace the democratic constitutional republic that we have with a more authoritarian religious order, more authoritarian, theocratic order. You don't want someone who's going to just, you know, take a seat at the table. You want someone who's going to smash the table and, you know, crack heads as long as those heads belong to your so-called enemies. If they had the power they want, if they were able to achieve even more power, be it in state legislatures or in, in the federal government, if they had control over all the levers of power and could create this more authoritarian, theocratic-focused government, what would their agenda be? What does that power turn into in their ideal world? That's a you know great question, and I think that you know a lot of the movement's strategic direction is coming through the courts, and you know when we're talking about power, let's just look at what they're achieving in their courts. So, thanks to this massive influx of Trump appointees. Last I checked, it was 192 federal judges. That's just over 22% of the judiciary, federal judiciary. The courts are now stamped with the consequences of that election. And, you know, they understand the importance of capturing the courts and they're, you know, already bringing cases to the courts that are intended to, you know, just among many things, increase the flow of public funding to conservative religious entities. The religious uh, groups in America already, you know, let's remember, receive substantial public money through special subsidies and tax deductions, grants, vouchers, and other schemes. Um, They have other benefits that other non-religious nonprofits don't have, but they want to increase that flow of public money. This is really obvious, for instance, in the field of public education, where religiously motivated voucher advocates argue that public funding of religious schools is a religious liberty issue. I mean, America now spends something like uh, five or six hundred million dollars per year on public K through 12. And these religious entities want to capture, they already capture some portion of that, but they want to increase that flow. But it goes even further than that. So eight federal agencies have proposed changes to the rules governing how they work with religious organizations. And they propose to allow these religious organizations to receive taxpayer money 
without complying with non-discrimination law. In some instances, that taxpayer money is delivered through vouchers or indirect aid, which means the organizations can proselytize or acquire participation in religious services. So basically, one of the things that they're after is taxpayer funding of conservative religious entities that are free to proselytize and discriminate against people whose characteristics or very being that they disapprove. So it's basically the creation of a kind of two-tiered system of, uh, um, you know, of America. You've got sort of one group in America, people who believe rightly, who receive the privileges of, you know, taxpayer money and the privilege to discriminate. And then there's everybody else who's sort of an, you know, underprivileged or less privileged group. How did so they, that's just the start. Yeah. How did they view the social justice side of religion today? That's really a great question. I mean, Christian nationalists reserve some of their most hateful words for people who dare to identify as Christians of another sort. And, uh, you know, it's important to remember that there's a lo- there are large numbers of Christians, perhaps even most American Christians, who do not uh, agree with the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. And they, um, some of them question whether the movement is even Christian in the first place. And uh, members of the movement are, are constantly, you know, in their, sometimes in their written materials or even when they're just speaking, characterizing them at best as wrongheaded and at worst as uh, unbiblical. Is there a new generation coming up in this movement? So many of the original leaders, particularly if we look back to, to the 70s, are aging out, it seems. Is there a new generation coming along? Wow, that's a great question. And it's true that the demographics are shifting. But I think that many progressives are under the illusion that well, time will heal all mm-hmm. of this. And it won't. I think what time may well do is convert demographic change into new supporters of the hard right. Um, you know, the thing to bear in mind here is that members of the movement vote in disproportionate numbers. I go to these right-wing conferences in my research, and I remember Ralph Reed, who's the head of one of the leading right-wing policy groups, saying something to the effect of, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase here. He said, don't pay attention to the polls. What matters is not the percentage of the population. We Our percentage is declining. All that matters is who turns out on election day. And, you know, it's important to remote, remember that, like, our 40 to 50 percent of our population doesn't vote at all. So if you have a large segment of the public that just isn't turning out to vote, all you really need is a small and committed group to dominate. Are they as motivated today as they were 10 years ago? I think they're even more motivated than they were 10 years ago. They're far more organized. They have, you know, um, continue to sort of perfect their data machine, their media, and their messaging, their targeting. They have all of these really sophisticated tools. One of the tools that they employ is that, you know, they understand that pastors drive votes. And so they make a great effort to get these conservative-leaning pastors into these networks and give them the right tools that they need to turn out their congregations to vote for the conservative candidates that the movement favors. So they've sort of just done a lot of organizational infrastructure building, uh, using all of the tools of modern political campaigns to turn out their vote. So I see them as more devoted than ever before. 
On the other hand, and let's, you know, not to get uh, feel depressed about this, I also see the opposition as more motivated than, than uh, we were five or six years ago. I think, you know, first of all, we can't begin to face our challenges as a society unless people know what's happening. And five or six years ago, a lot of people were really kind of unaware of the influence of this movement. I think that's really changing. And number two, I'm just seeing much more activism than I ever saw today, um, uh, than I ever saw before. I think more people are politically engaged. They're determined not just to vote themselves, but to hold their friends and neighbors accountable. And I think we understand the need for unity more than we did five or six years ago. Um, so I'm really, you know, I think the rise of religious nationalism is a definitely a cause for alarm, but it's not a cause for despair. And how do you see it continuing to play out over the next several months with respect to this issue of, of the pandemic that we face and this issue of life versus death and, and, and the economy versus life? It's really challenging. I mean, in order to meet uh, the, the, the needs that this uh, crisis are going to create, we're going to need a kind of, you know, some collective uh, solutions. We're all going to need to pull together as a society and help all those people who have lost their jobs. And right now we have a poorly developed collective infrastructure. And that, I have to say, is a consequence of right-wing economic policy. And this movement is implicated in that, too. It has completely allied itself with the libertarian pro-corporate economic wing of the Republican Party and uh, supports politicians and policies that have led to, say, the privatization of the healthcare system and the undermining of the social safety net and government everywhere. They're constantly demonizing government and seeking to tear down the social safety net, even going so far as to call government-funded food and, and housing assistance unbiblical. So this is an enormous reason why we aren't prepared for this crisis. But I think the fact that you know Republicans are not are the the solutions that they're proposing are intended to assist corporate power um, at the expense of the workforce is really stark, and people are starting to kind of understand that, and hopefully we'll start to understand that. Um, you know, the, the need to kind of pull together as a society and help every every single member. But is that coming from just an economic argument, from a corporatist argument, or is there some religious underpinning that, that the, the religious nationalists are using to foster this argument of, of business over individuals? That is complete, that's so great. To you, there is completely a religious basis for it. So I'll just give you one example. There's this fellow named Ralph Drawlinger. I write about him in my book. He's the founder of a group called Capital Ministries, that targets political leaders at the highest echelons of power. So you know, a dozen. If you look at the Capital Ministries website, all of this is online. You can just see it. A dozen current and former members of Trump's cabinet are listed as cabinet sponsors and have attended or attend his weekly Bible study in the nation's capital. We're talking about you know Alex Azar, Mike Pence, Pompeo, folks like that. So really powerful folks. Drawlinger also has Bible study groups targeting the House of Representatives and the Senate. So he is arguably one of the most politically influential pastors in America today. So he has all of these theological papers, his Bible study um, programs that he puts online, you can read them, promoting the idea that social welfare programs have no basis in Scripture. 
He is against progressive income taxes, has a theology of taxation that unabashedly favors the rich. He supports the flat tax. He says any, you know, deviation from the flat tax is, you know, unbiblical. He also writes that God believes in deregulation of businesses and environmental deregulation, that laborers in the workforce should, should quote unquote, submit to their bosses. And he actually finds a theological basis for the submission of the workforce to bosses um, in the first letter of Peter in the uh, New Testament, and he compares it to a, this passage that had to do with slavery. It's really amazing. He says the, the economy of Rome back then was one of slavery, master and slave, but the same principle holds true today to you know the workforce and their bosses. It's kind of astonishing. Well, this is a theology that is music to the ears of the movement's plutocratic funders, many of whom rely on minimal workers' rights and economic deregulation to maintain and increase their profits. So it reflects the movement's longstanding alliance with certain moneyed interests and a hostility to the notion of social and economic uh, equality. In, in many ways, you know, you have to say it's the exact opposite interpretation of the Christian religion as many and perhaps most American Christians understand it. When... The rubber meets the road in this, and and you get people like Glenn Beck and Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, talking about how they would rather die than see the economy die or see American exceptionalism die. How much of that is pure hypocrisy, and how much of it is that they really believe in this, this religious nationalism? Well, you know, I think when it comes to religious nationalism— there's a tremendous amount of unity and they tend to take a kind of all spin, all politics view of the world. Uh, Again, everything is spun for political gain. And so if this is sort of the word of their leader and this is kind of the word on the street, then everybody's going to mouth it. I mean, I think if you look at the failures of Trump's response to the virus now and, uh, and how much he's sort of, trying to aid corporations rather than the workforce, what, what we can start to see is that um, uh, at the end of the day, is, you know, you have to question, is he really trying to aid every American citizen or he is he, you know, working overtime to direct um, potential profits to political cronies? I think there's, you know, some of both of those things happening here. How do you see this playing out in this crisis? Is this going to be good for the movement or bad for the movement? Well, I'm not in the you know business mm-hmm. of predicting the future, but I do know that you know when it comes to the 2020 election, the movement is as sophisticated and organized as it has ever been. The religious right is really a machine. It's it's not exactly leaderless, but it is kind of centerless. It consists of a large variety of, you know, for-profit, non-profit organizations, um, policy groups, legal advocacy groups, messaging groups, um, and other groups that are kind of working hand in glove. So, you know, what unites them, you know, there are obviously differences among the leaders and some theological differences among some of the you know, leader, leading organizations or, or folks in leadership positions. But what really does unite them is a, a determination to, to win <laughs> and a desire for political power. Catherine Stewart. 
Catherine, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. It's a pleasure to, to participate. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.